0: This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Get $50 off select mattresses by visiting casper.com. fool And use promo code Fool at checkout. Also thanks to Harry's. Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades, they'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com. Just pay for shipping! This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Hello, Allison. In this week's episode, we've enlisted the help of author Alan Pell Crawford. He's written a book about Mark Twain and all the money mistakes he made. We're also going to talk about the downfall of Theranos and its tenaciously deceptive founder. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers.
1: So, what's up, Allison? Yeah,
0: that's right. It's what's up, Allison, not what's up, bro, this week. We switched it up on you guys. Uh, So, what's up with me is that I've been thinking about how glad I am that we no longer live in a world of medical quackery, where someone can claim a technological breakthrough and then investors sink a ton of money into that. But then it turns out the inventor was lying the whole time. I mean, just outright lying!
1: That doesn't happen anymore?
0: Yes. So Recently, the SEC has charged Theranos CEO and founder Elizabeth Holmes and her COO with perpetrating an elaborate fraud to deceive investors into believing that their portable blood analyzer could conduct comprehensive blood tests from a single drop of blood. Normally, these kinds of tests require vial after vial, and they have to be sent out and they come back. It's very labor and time intensive. So, they said, oh, we've got a solution it's our edison which they actually later named the mini lab but it turns out it well wasn't true the sec says she deceived investors out of 700 million dollars between 2013 wow. and 2015 so we now know of course that they were lying and it flat out didn't work but investors and the media were being lied to constantly by the founders. they noticed fake demonstrations. They lied about clinical trials, lied about military contracts. They told investors they would make $100 million in a year when they ended up making $100,000. She told investors they didn't need FDA approval because they were the gold standard. Talk <laughs> about lying! So, how did this happen? And how can you avoid a similar trap as an investor? I have three takeaways.
1: Well, what are they?
0: The first takeaway is to blame the media, particularly the tech media. Uh, So Elizabeth Holmes was a great story. She didn't look like your typical entrepreneur. She was young, just 19 years old when she founded the company. She was quite striking in her black turtlenecks, red lipstick, and blonde hair. On the one hand, I feel kind of bad about describing her and being and kind of objectifying her as a woman and being like, oh, well, she was a beautiful woman in science. But I really think it was part of the story and why it was so remarkable. I agree with you. And she cultivated that. I mean, she contributed to that very cultivated image as well. Unfortunately, in America, of course, we don't associate beautiful with nerd. So the idea that she could be both was so attractive to reporters. What a great story! She was on the cover of Fortune, Forbes, Inc. You name it. And she was touted as the next Steve Jobs. Forbes said she was worth $4.5 billion. Of course, this was all on paper. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> but something that I thought was even more interesting about this rather than just like, oh, the media loved her. Nick Belton at Van- Vanity Fair, he kind of gave us a glimpse into this how the world of Silicon Valley and tech writers works, which I didn't really have any clue. Um, so, basically, here's a quote from an article he wrote. After all, while Silicon Valley is responsible for some truly astounding companies, its business dealings can also replicate one big confidence game in which entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and the tech media pretend to vet one another, while in reality, they're functioning as cogs in a machine that is designed to not question anything and buoy one another all along the way. In the end, it isn't in anyone's interest to call BS.
1: Right, because if. If you're that person who's constantly challenging things, you're not the person who's going to get the interviews and get the access.
0: The access, right? It's all about the access. So it becomes a cycle of hi- of hype where entrepreneurs want more money, Silicon investors want to make money off of what they're investing in tech. We want some good tech reporters want a good story, and they want to get access to the to people like Elizabeth Holmes, um, and she knew how to work the media so long as they weren't medical experts. So, one of the big reasons why I think this was able to happen was because she was a medical tech company. And so tech companies and tech tech writers that were writing about her didn't really understand the medical technology. But if you were an actual healthcare reporter, particularly John Carreyrou at the Wall Street Journal, two-time Pulitzer winner by the way, was skeptical because for a number of reasons. But one of the big ones was that she just couldn't explain how it all worked. So, for example, when the New Yorker asked her, how does this amazing technology work? She said, a chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample, which is translated into a result, which is then reviewed by certified laboratory personnel. And then she added... Thanks to miniaturization and automation, we are able to handle these tiny samples. <laughs> and so, tech tech reporters are like, "Cool, sounds good."
1: I bet there's some synergy in there there's too. There's some
0: synergy. There's some out of the box thinking. It's so exciting. It really AI. sounds
2: like a cartoon villain.
0: It does. <laughs> miniaturization and automation. That is. That could be. That could go wrong. Um, so. So, you can imagine you're a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at the Wall Street Journal, John Carreyrou. You see, hear this and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> anyway, so the lesson that I have here is that instead of listening to the hype, you should listen to what the most qualified people are saying. In this case, it was the writer at the Wall Street Journal and others who wrote story after story about how he was skeptical of Theranos. Meanwhile, others were singing her praises still and still putting her on the cover of the magazine. All right, lesson number two. The company was secretive. Very, very, very secretive. As the saying goes, two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. And Holmes was always very <laughs> Killing people? <laughs> we don't know that for sure. but uh, Holmes was always very secretive about the te- how the technology worked. Um, she said that she didn't want to tip off the competitors, and people were like, OK, cool. But now we know why she (laughs) was so secretive (laughs) about the technology. Um, This is kind of crazy. When she raised money, she took it from VCs on the condition that she would not divulge to investors how the technology worked and that she would have final say and control over all aspects of the company. And it scared off investors like Google Ventures because they were like, hey, tell us about your company and before we invest and she's like no and so they actually <laughs> sent a vc to one of these walgreens theranos labs where you go and you get your blood drawn and you know supposedly the whole thing that she was selling the vc is there having his or her blood drawn and noticed huh that's more than a pin prick of blood they're taking here something doesn't add up and that's why google ventures didn't invest in it uh, people tended to shrug off her secrecy as just another thing that she borrowed from Steve Jobs. So, like her turtlenecks and right. her work ethic and drinking green juice all day long. Um, here's another thing that she did that's so, so super sneaky and smart. When she assembled her board of directors, she chose a dozen older white men, almost none of whom had a background in healthcare. So, it included former secretaries of state like Henry Kissinger, um, former defense secretaries. Someone told Vanity Fair this was a board that was better suited to decide if America should invade Iraq than vet a blood testing <laughs> company. <laughs> so, how great is that? That she's like, she's the only woman on this board, charming, young. She hires all of these very intelligent men and accomplished in their own fields and just charms the pants off of them, not literally that I know of, sorry. <laughs> did not did not mean to say that. That was not planned. Fun fact, her board also included the lawyer who tried to stop the revelations of Harvey Weinstein's sexual harassment for nice. decades. Nice. So, pro tip, if that lawyer is involved in a company you're <laughs> investing in, I would call that a sell sign. Uh, the company also internally was very siloed. Employees were discouraged from talking to each other about what they were working on and every decision crossed her desk, according to Vanity Fair. Wow! So the lesson is, some level of secrecy is to be expected, but opacity within an organization is going to stifle collaboration, at the best case scenario, at the worst case scenario, it's hiding something, some shenanigans. Shenanigans. (laughs) And the final lesson is that we all wanted to believe none of us more than Holmes. So, what did Theranos promise to do? 240 tests ranging from cholesterol to cancer with the finger prick of blood, so less blood, cheaper cost. It was gonna, it was just amazing. It was like a mission. It was gonna make the world a better place, which apparently is catnip to Silicon Valley investors who want <laughs> to look like good dudes as opposed to just like greedily trying to make money like the rest of us. Um, so they all wanted to believe in it. None more than Holmes, though. From the very beginning, people told her this wasn't possible. Her idea of t- running all these tests from a single finger prick of blood—it was just not going to work. But she kept at it and kept at it. And I believe that she still thinks that she can do this. (laughs) She is still um, speaking at events. She's ditched her turtleneck, by the way, Um, and talking to reporters about the technology that that, she has made, even though everybody knows it doesn't work. Her tenacity, audacity, and her ability to compartmentalize is quite <laughs> impressive. And it's because of this that I wouldn't be surprised if in like 10 years' time she comes back up out of hiding and is like, oh, actually, I did. I finally cracked it. I've been working on it and I did it. I finally did it this time. And I wouldn't be surprised if people invested money in her again because she is that tenacious.
1: So, what actually happened in the news? I mean, is. The SEC is going the after SEC them. The SEC has, she settled Is she, she personally has settled, in legal trouble?
0: She's, uh, so it was her and her COO. Okay. She has settled with the SEC. And so she has to pay like a hundred or five hundred, like half a million dollars. And she has to give back some shares of the company, which is like, oh, whatever. Like you could set them on right. fire at this point. <laughs> um, so yeah, the big news is the SEC, she's also being sued by um, like Walgreens. Because of those deals, because she's—I mean, she was literally lying to everyone Mm. at all times. Like there, I was so I was going back and reading old articles, and she was saying like, "No, I don't wear the black turtleneck because of Steve Jobs. Um, I wear it because when I was a kid, my mom saw Sharon Stone at the Academy Awards wearing a turtleneck, and from that point forward, she had me and my brother wear turtlenecks a lot." (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm like, "You're." Lying. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You are absolutely wearing a stupid black turtleneck every day to look like Steve Jobs and evoke Steve Jobs.
1: And they had to keep the temperature low in the, in the 60 degrees. I uh, know. So she would be comfortable in yeah, the turtleneck. Yeah. Which
0: is awesome. And she's saying, you know, whatever. its It's fine. So the lesson here is that if something seems too good to be true, Let's assume that they're lying. I know like most of us want to assume that we have these amazing technological breakthroughs, and we do. We do. A lot of great entrepreneurs and inventors are out there doing fantastic things, but maybe let's just assume they're lying first, and then, best case scenario, you're pleasantly surprised. Because the amount that people are able, the links that people are able to go to to deceive us, is, I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah, She was literally lying to everyone all the time.
1: It's it's like a whole other risk to investing. When you buy a stock, you have to put so much trust in what you're being told. And the more complicated an investment is, the more you just have to assume that the company knows what it's doing. Because you're not going to go, I own Intuitive Surgical. I don't know anything about their robots. I just assume that they work and they make enough money to to prove it, I guess. But you're still putting a lot of faith in that.
0: Well, I think she was able to get away with a lot because it was still a private company, so she didn't have to really do a lot of standard filings that that you have to when you go public. So, I don't know. She was going to get found out anyway, it was just a matter of time. I really feel like she just felt like she really was always on the cusp of of getting there and just really wanted to believe and believe until it came true. And it just never came true.
2: (laughs) Alison, you're giving her a lot of credit for actually having a technology of some kind. Oh. For her to think that she's actually almost breaking whatever. Well, you'd think like, she'd I, have to. It be. sounds like it's. I mean, is there actually a technology? There is. Mean,
0: yeah, there's a little black uh, box. There's, there's a
2: real miniaturizer in there. There I mean, is. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's how I lose my weight. I go, I go into there.
0: So there, I mean, there is a black box, the Edison, and then they renamed it. Um, it's literally it did, a black box. It, I mean, it it's, is. It's literally a little black box. Um, and there's they nothing did, inside of they it. They did get approved for testing, like for herpes. Like they do have, they did get approved for some tests. But this claim that you could look for 240 different conditions out of one drop of blood is just too audacious. Like, you know, it's, it's going to take vials and vials and massive big machines to do everything that she claimed it could do. It could do something. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. Buying Casper is easy. You order it online, it's delivered to your door in a compact box, you get free shipping and free returns in U.S. and Canada with a risk-free 100-day trial. Considering we spend one third of our lives on a mattress, it's so important to truly sleep on a mattress before committing. That's why Casper gives you hundred nights to try it out. But from what we've heard from fellow fools, you won't need that trial because you're gonna love it. Get fifty dollars towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com/fool and use promo code FOOL at checkout.
1: Partway. Partway. It's to Samuel Langhorne Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, is considered one of America's most treasured authors. He's known for such books as The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. What's less known? Twain was also an inventor, an investor, and an entrepreneur. He helped start an insurance company, he invented a clasp that was supposed to keep blankets on babies, he created a board game that was intended to teach historical facts, he founded a food supplement company, he has a patent on an alternative to suspenders, (laughs) and he backed a company that made a machine that removed 99% of the steam from a pound of coal. You may not have heard about all these pursuits because most of them failed. He was lousy with money. and That's the lesson of a book entitled, How Not to Get Rich. The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain. The author, Alan Pell Crawford, recently stopped by Fool HQ and he and I discussed how Twain repeatedly made, spent and lost tons of money, we're talking like millions in today's dollars, causing him to go deep into debt and eventually declare bankruptcy at the age of 58. Uh, And a a New York newspaper actually created a charity drive to raise money for Mark Twain until Twain's wife put an end to that. Fortunately, he recovered toward the end of his life with the help of a friend who took over Twain's finances and told him to put all his money in the stock market. So, a bit about Alan Pell Crawford. He's a former congressional speechwriter and a press secretary, as well as the author of books on colonial America and a remarkably prescient 1980 book called Thunder on the Right. My discussion with Alan was about an hour long, so this is only a portion of it.
2: And it was filmed in front of a live, full audience. And it
1: was. So, everyone ready? Here we go.
2: Here's the story of the brilliant man, and everything he does in the way of business success is a calamity. Millions of dollars are, are squandered and lost, and yet he never loses his sense of, of, uh, of possibility. It's impossible not to love Mark Twain, or Samuel Clemens. It's impossible to live with this man and go through these adventures with him and not feel an enormous amount of sympathy but to enjoy his, his personality throughout. that's it, why. I, and, and that's why when I got done writing it, I was, I was uh, a little sad because I missed him.
1: It turns out that Mark Twain was actually born at, at a good time to be wealthy because you cite Gladwell's research about how of the 75 richest people ever born, 13 were Americans born around that time, like right.
2: Carnegie and Morgan. Yeah, and a, around 1835. Yes, that's true, and Mark Twain certainly made an astute business decision to be born when he did. (laughs) It it is true that this was a period of tremendous economic expansion in the United States so that great fortunes were made. That's undeniable. Um, The Industrial Revolution was beginning to pick up great fortunes were going to be made in steel and railroads and coal and, and all of that industrialization was beginning to really take
1: root. So he's born in 1835 in Florida, Missouri. Right. uh, And he comes by his financial mismanagement honestly. His father was not very good with money.
2: No, he came by it honestly and not by fraud. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) He, um, yeah, his father was um, actually from the western part of, uh, from southwest Virginia in Campbell County. And, Uh, Twain says he left, uh, he didn't leave them any money, but he left them a great family name, Clemens, which he associated with and claimed uh, to be members of the FFVs, the first families of Virginia, like the Jeffersons and Randolphs that I mentioned before. Uh, He was a a very earnest man, um, uh, John Marshall Clemens. He... uh, failed as a lawyer, he failed as a storekeeper, he failed as an innkeeper. He kept trying different things through the years and never succeeded. He did uh, amass enough money at one point to buy the family estimated at one point as many as 100,000 acres in Tennessee, undeveloped real estate. And and, uh, later, I think, title was established to about 30,000. And he said, he kept telling the, the family, look, we don't have anything right now, but you hold on to that land until the time is right and the price is where it should be and sell it and we'll be fabulously rich. You guys will be taken care of for the rest of your lives and generations to come. And, and Twain said, there's a blessing in being born poor. And there's a great deal to be said for being born rich, but to be born prospectively rich is a curse. <laughs> and and so he said so he, they the family lived with a great sense of expectation and they were highly intelligent people twain got his sense of humor from his mother clearly she was a very light-hearted uh, uh engaging woman who uh had a great sense of humor and so you on the one hand he is he gets a great sense of imagination from his mother and a, and a uh, maybe a bad example of how to conduct yourself as a businessman uh, from his father. uh, Although I must say in his father's defense uh, in terms of imagination his father spent years trying to develop I think it was a perpetual motion machine. So time that might have been spent earning wages was spent tinkering with, uh, with inventions as he had a brother Orion Clemens who uh, spent years trying to invent a flying machine. So, to, and Twain tries to invent things himself through the years. So, they, this is um, it gives you a little insight into the peculiar kind of family that that he he grew up in. That, uh, and I offer no uh, facile psychological explanations for why he was so determined, and not just to be prosperous as he was any number of times in his life, but to be. Rich in the sense of a Vanderbilt or a Morgan or a Carnegie. One
1: of the first business pursuits uh, Mark Twain tried, as I understand it was, to corner the world's cocaine market.
2: Yes. He, was, uh, uh, he wasn't even, I don't think he was 18 or 19 years old at the time. And there was a, a book uh, of, uh, of an American explorer who went to the Amazon and noticed and, and observed the silver mining operations uh, going on down there, and how these indigenous peoples could uh, work endlessly with no food, and they didn't seem to get tired, and they were in sub—they were very cold uh, streams, waiting, waiting around, and because they were chewing the leaf of the coca plant. And uh, this man observed this, and Twain got this brilliant idea. Why, you know, we've got—he could see, I think, a tremendous market uh, for this elixir. That is exactly what—if you're running a a textile mill in New England or something—and you want your workers to work uh, uncomplainingly all day. Cocaine's the answer. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, here it is. And so he decides he's going to go to take a ship from New Orleans to the Amazon and get it all figured out, and then his brother will join him, and they will, they will create a monopoly on this product and ship it to Europe and, and to the United States. And unfortunately, he gets to New Orleans and he runs out of money and he also learns that there are no ships leaving from New Orleans to the Amazon and there wouldn't be, they said, for another half century at least. So he decides, well, that I, I, I need to find a new occupation. That's how he ended up talking his way onto a job as a, riverboat, a cub riverboat pilot on the way back, back north on the Mississippi.
1: And he comes. I, I assume this is where he comes across the term that means the water is deep enough to be safe, which means it's
2: two fathoms deep, and that term is uh, Mark Twain. Right. At some point, and the scholars disagree about this. There are various theories, but that he began to use the the, the, the byline Mark Twain, which does have the river uh, usage that you're referring to. There was also another man by, that wrote a few pieces for one of the New Orleans newspapers, who was himself on the river uh, and used that, actually used that uh, uh, byline first. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. So it's plagiarism on top of all the, other, uh,
1: <laughs> all the other mistakes. So he has to pay $500 to be an apprentice, basically, on the riverboat. Problem with that situation is the Civil War breaks out.
2: Yeah, he was making a fair amount of money. I, I don't know if you've seen, as a very young man, in a, what was a glamorous occupation of being, uh, you know, the riverboats. We think of them as kind of quaint, right? No, this was the this was the glamorous thing to be doing. Twain uh, did very well as a young man as a riverboat pilot and, and loved the work and thought he would do it for the rest of his days. But then something unfortunate happens, which was a war comes and shipping on the Mississippi River is shut down. And uh, he learns this uh, when he—I mean, he knew about it, but it became, let's say, it became very vivid when they uh he and another uh, pilot friend—are are nearing St. Louis, and uh, uh, their their boat gets fired on by federal gun, uh, artillery. And uh, uh, his Twain's just a passenger up in the pilot house when his friend is at the wheel, and he says. Uh, uh, it's, Shell hits them, and stuff goes flying, and, and he says, uh, Sam, what do you think that means? And, and Twain says, I think that means they want us to slow down a little. And Twain then takes the wheel and heroically maneuvers the thing into safety, but that's the end of his piloting. In fact, he, uh, according to his sister's account, he, he was scared to death that he was going to be impressed into the Union Army and uh, as a pilot on gunboats, and if he didn't, and that they would shoot him at the least sign of a, of, a, uh, of a misstep. So he, at this point, then he, again, he says, I've got to find something, I've got to find a new livelihood, and um, like thousands of other uh, American men who didn't want to get shot, he uh, left for the Nevada uh, silver mining uh, boom, with his brother, who was appointed to a government post out west, so he does some pretty dirty work there for a while. He and a friend do
1: get the rights to a blind lead to some silver. Basically, they blew
2: it. Yeah, they had um, they stumbled onto a vein of silver that, if they uh, that that they could lay claim to. It meant that, and it was running through another person, another uh, little company's claim. That could shut this down. They had, I think, 10 days to do some very minimal work to make this claim theirs legally, where everything had to stop, and they got to go in there and make their millions. Um, They sat up, when when they discovered this, they sat up all night talking about what they were going to do with the money, where they were going to—they were going to spend a year and a half traveling in Europe. They were going to build mansions in San Francisco. They—they uh, they, Twain had explained he knew exactly where the billiard table was going to be, and what his what his liveried servants were going to wear, uh, and in great detail they figured this out. And then they don't—they don't communicate properly. And uh, one goes off in one direction, and, and Twain goes out and to, to visit a sick friend. And by the time they come back, they left notes for the other one on what you're supposed to do to work this claim so it, it's permanent and it, it's ours. And unfortunately, um, neither of them got the other's note. And as Twain says, I was a millionaire there for an hour or two, and now I'm poor again. Um, it's one of the early one of the early uh, financial calamities to that that again I think that what's wonderful about this is everybody reads this will say oh my favorite time was when x happened and that in part because Twain always there's an irrepressibility to his his uh, personality and nothing discourages him temporarily it does you know there are periods when he walks the, when he can't sleep, and he paces the floor, and he drinks too much, and he worries. Um, and, uh, but then something occurs to him that, oh, this is going to be it. This time, I'm going to make a fortune. And all that other stuff seems to have been forgotten. He moves forward.
0: Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Harry's is all about a great shave at a fair price, which is why over 3 million guys have switched to Harry's. Harry's has stripped out the unnecessary features and unnecessary costs to deliver customers one perfect razor at an amazing price. A good shave comes down to good blades. and Because Harry's owns the factory, they're able to deliver amazing quality blades for just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at a drugstore. All products are backed by a 100% quality guarantee and the Mrs. Brocamp seal of approval. Right, bro?
1: It's true. She says it's the closest shave I've ever had.
0: <laughs> Harry's is so confident you're going to love their blades. They'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com. Just pay for shipping.
2: At this point, he's just beginning to do a little bit of writing. He's he's submitting comic articles to papers in California and and Nevada that seem to be kind of popular. People think, yeah, this guy's kind of funny. Um, And he writes a letter to a a brother, to the brother back in Keokuk or St. Louis or wherever he was at the time, saying, you know, I I still haven't found my real calling in life. I'm still looking for it. I'm doing all these things and – Kind of embarrassed to admit this, but I seem to have a knack for writing. He says, it's not writing of a high order. It's nothing to be proud of. I'm kind of embarrassed. And and it seems like a legit letter. He's not being facetious or sarcastic. Um, He says, you know, it's nothing to write home about, although he's writing home about it. And says, "Uh, but I seem to be kind of good at this, and maybe this is the card I should start to play.
1: So he goes to San Francisco. He does get a job as a journalist. Right. And as I understand it, you could get stock from miners for writing articles about the mines. Yes, journalism. Yes, exactly. So you would be given stock and with the, I assume, assumption that you would write nice things about the mine.
2: Yeah, and, and, and they did. He, and he, he, he amasses boxes of of stock in in silver mines and um he says you know if there wasn't anything to be said about the ore that seemed to be produced then they would talk about what a great management the team had or some kind of new uh uh uh, system for washing out the ore and, and and pumping pumping out the mines and they would find something favorable to say about the operation and this is a he says sometimes even if we didn't say anything good about it. The the owners were happy. So, uh, you know, the the price keeps accelerating and accelerating and accelerating. And and then the boom, the the bust comes. And all that, those stock certificates are worth nothing. So let's jump ahead a little bit to where he actually does start getting money. First of
1: all, he does eventually become a successful writer. But also, at least importantly, he marries rich.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a, one of his really good business decisions. He meets a young uh, man from Elmira, New York, who is very well connected socially and financially. His father is a coal baron in upstate New York. And according to Twain's account of this, the young man shows him a miniature of his sister. And Twain falls madly in love with the sister and begins to court her. And um, apparently, I mean, yes, he married well, and I'm sure that played a role in his choice. But it his, his is a great marriage, totally devoted, an oddest couple, because she is very re- refined, educated, genteel, progressive. Her father is a ab- was an abolitionist. Um, and a high-toned New York society. And Twain is this upstart from nowhere whose only claim to prominence is a book that's of kind of raffish charm. And he uh, uh, proposes to um, Olivia, Olivia, um, uh, and she, Langdon, and she, she accepts his proposal of marriage knowing that it's, you know, such a far-fetched match. And so Twain's not only married rich, he's now part owner of a newspaper, and he is, he's got a mansion to live in in, in in Buffalo, New York, in the finest area of Buffalo, wherever that would be.
1: So they stay in Buffalo for a while. They eventually go to Connecticut. And this is where one of the problems, and we see this a lot with many successful, wealthy people, is that they didn't make enough money, it's that they spent too much. They go to Connecticut and they build, yeah, a 25 room mansion.
2: Yeah, but before this happens, they sell that house they were given as a wedding present at a loss. And then they uh, then within a year, the father dies, leaving them uh, the equivalent of four, almost four and a half million dollars. And now they can, you know, he's got another book contract, He he's dabbling in a number of other uh, investments, and they decide to move to Hartford, Connecticut, which is his, uh, where his publisher is located at the time, as well as the insurance capital of the country. And they fall in with a very uh, uh, well-to-do kind of intellectual class of uh, progressive uh, people, uh, and they decide to build a mansion there, which is just, uh, just incredible. And they, at this point, they're entertaining. It seems like several times a week, dinner parties and all of this. And they, things just get a little bit of out of control.
1: And so they're spending that. They go to Europe. They come back with like 22 boxes of furniture.
2: And shortly after he got to Hartford, he had some friends who decided they were going to, and these were businessmen, unlike Twain, they are going to, uh, t- to start a new insurance company to rival the travelers, to challenge the travelers. And Twain invests, I think, 25000 in that day's money, and calculating the contemporary terms of this is, uh, values of this is a complicated matter for historians, but I've done a little bit of it. And... Um, so he, he becomes what we would call a brand ambassador for the insurance industry. He, uh, he says that, all once, that that now that he's a vice president of an insurance company, that, that he's lost all interest in politics and the arts and literature and music and all these other things. All he loves now is insurance. And he says that the, now a, a, a locomotive explosion has a a charm for him that he'd never had before, and he said he looks uh, he looks on crippled people with a simp- with a sympathy he'd never known before, and he says he regards them as advertisements. He's investing in a lot of things that are not
1: very well established, and I, we should I should point out that some of the things he did he invested in or invented because he also tried to invent things. Yeah, actually did work out. For example, the scrapbook.
2: Yes, but, uh, as as. Uh, one of his biographers said that the one book during this period that he wrote, that, that he produced that made money was not one he wrote but invented. And this is, Twain seems to have been a, 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 a collector of, of clippings, especially the ones about himself. So he invents what he calls a rational scrapbook, it's a self adhesive. It seems to have had some kind of gummy, sticky stuff on the page, and I think you wetted wetted that, and then you pasted the clipping on that. This thing went through like 50 editions through the years. Mark Twain's self-pasting scrapbook. And they made a lot of money off of this. So eventually he does uh, complete Huckleberry Finn. At the same time, he decides to go into the publishing business and start his own publishing company. And one of the first things he does is uh, not only he's going to publish Huckleberry Finn out of his own company, the Webster Publishing Company, but he's going to get, he hears that General Grant, former President Ulysses S. Grant, is going to write his memoirs. He goes to see Grant and bids for the right to publish those memoirs. And he offers him something like 70% royalties, which was totally unheard of then or now. Grant goes for this, because Grant's deeply in debt at this time himself, and he's worried, you know, he's dying of cancer, and he's worried about what's gonna happen to his family after his death. So they form this alliance, Twain and Grant, publish the memoirs, and it is the most successful book publishing venture in its time, in the history of American publishing. Uh, Grant's widow made almost $5 million off of this, in our dollars. Um, and I think that was 400000 at that time. They wrote her first check to $200,000 to Grant's widow, Julia Dent Grant. Twain himself made, as the publisher, made $200,000 off of this. So he made $3 million, something like that. And it was a tremendous success. At the same time, he, his company brings out uh, Huckleberry Finn, and that was a big success. And that was the last success the uh, uh, Webster Publishing Company had. After that, they, uh, they published book after book after book that had no commercial appeal. One was a collection of sermons. Once was a book on 75 ways to cook eggs. Um, one was on
1: the speech of monkeys.
2: That, that's right. There was a book on the speech of monkeys. I'd love to read that. <laughs> Your
1: book lists failed venture after failed venture after failed venture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Briefly talk about the page compositor, because that was probably oh, yeah. the biggest one, and then we'll briefly get to how he actually in the end of his life he did okay financially.
2: Yeah. Yes, he again, he when he got involved in there's some hope for him when he gets involved in an investment in a business that he understands, he had been a typesetter as a young man in his brother's print shop. So he knows that he's been intimately involved in covers and Typefaces and pagination and and all of this in book publishing, and you know he didn't leave this to the publishers. he worked himself very diligently to understand all aspects of it. He found a, a young inventor who had developed who had the idea for a um, something that would print pay newspapers faster than than it had ever been known and it said and and not only was it faster, twain said it it unlike uh, newspaper uh print shop workers it didn't join a union and it didn't get drunk so he invests something like four million dollars in this over like 10 years oh yeah it, he had the printer he had the, the the inventor on the payroll this thing never worked properly by the time they got it done the mergenthaler machine had become the industry standard they lost everything on this with the, the publishing company went bankrupt. Uh, the page compositor uh, was a bust, and Twain in 1894 declared bankruptcy. So he manages, he, he is taken under the wing of a, of a, a Wall Street tycoon named H.H. H. Rogers, who worked for Standard Oil. Rogers helped him put his finances in order again, arrange the bankruptcy in what uh, one author has said was a, a, a fraudulent transaction, transfers all the, all the uh, copyrights to Twain's books to his wife, to Twain's wife. So that Twain himself has no assets. They all belong to his wife. And then, when the, as the books continue to sell, the money comes back in. He, engage, he goes on a worldwide lecture tour at about the age of 60, when, and he was an old 60 at the time, and made a lot of money lecturing in India and England and. Uh, they keep sending those that money back to Rogers, who invests it for them, and when he dies in 1910, I think he's worth uh, Twain is worth 11 million dollars. So there is a happy ending to this, to this book. If I wouldn't end it on a sour note because it's uh, it would be unfair to, to the facts and unfair to Twain and and for whom this is a, a joyful, uh, for a crazy story. I think there's a great deal of hope and and. Uh, He's an irrepressible man who, who has a great sense of opportunity and, and, and excitement. And uh, that's what keep, kept me in, you know, enjoying every step of the writing of this book.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Uh, it's an excellent book. A lot of great stories in it. Alan, thanks for coming here. Thank you.
0: And that's the show. It's edited.
2: Weckingly. Twain Weckingley.
0: Twain <laughs> Weckingley. <laughs> Never before has that been more true. Train Weckingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. I want to thank everyone on our uh, Facebook group who has been kind enough to contribute to our Luffy episode, which is coming up. If you want to vote on the best series from 2017, so whether you want to vote for Morgan or you want to vote for Judge Bro, uh, you can join our Facebook group and you'll find a link there to vote for the Luffy's and have your voice be heard.
1: Also in our Twitter account, you'll find it there.
0: Oh yeah, or follow us on Twitter, that's true. Uh, Alright, that's the show. For there Robert is. Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay Foolish, everybody.